please pronounce your name correctly for me? Sure. Ray Cross. And you run the Bushwick Print Lab and you are a printmaker, but I'm always interested in sort of how people got to doing this kind of stuff in the first place. So, you know, were your parents creative? Like what was your path to finding the creative industries? I was always uh, really visual and I grew up uh, kind of in the uh, the Shenandoah Valley um, between uh, Winchester, Virginia and Front Royal, uh, Virginia on a a farm there a small farm like my my father was a a civil engineer for the navy and uh, moved my parents moved from uh, ohio to virginia uh he had grown up on a farm so i think he wanted a similar experience to continue that and then for for his kids as well and so that's where i started and uh from the beginning i was always uh, very interested in the visual arts like it just connected immediately with uh something in me you know i I tried to learn to play the keyboard and I sort of got to Mary had a little lamb or something and just realized that I'm not a, I'm not a musical person or a linguist, but visually uh, it always just seemed like something that fit. And so throughout, uh, you know, elementary, middle, uh, high school, I was always really interested in the arts and uh, sort of mastering the arts uh, in some way. And so like, you know, trying to learn to do kind of classical drawing and realistic drawing and everything from like, you know, sort of uh, growing up with PBS and, you know, this this show called like Commander Mark and the the Draw Club or something, which was like a, a you know, drawing uh, sci-fi landscapes uh, for kids as much as, um, you know, there might have been painting happy trees or something for, for adults on PBS at the time. And was just uh, really interested in... Um, in visuality and and the kind of uh, history of art and in the nature of uh, graphic design. Uh, And so kind of worked my way through high school and ended up, um, you know, sort of joining the arts uh, honors society there, which is like sort of an arts, a high school arts organization for people who are interested in the visual arts and sort of coming from that. When applying to colleges, I just thought immediately like this is something I want to do and I'm interested in, in learning more about contemporary art and uh, in kind of developing this into some kind of career that I could, uh, could, could follow or, you know, that would be rewarding. And as it happened, one of the colleges that I was applying to was Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, which is, it turns out, uh, a really amazing uh, sort of art school that has a core curriculum year and sort of separates out visual artists and really gives a pretty uh, profound training in that area. They're also one of the the best schools in the nation for graduate sculpture, which was something that I never even realized until quite a bit after I graduated that I probably should have spent some more time with some of the amazing faculty uh, and the amazing facilities there while I was there. But I did get a really, uh, a really top-notch education in the visual arts, studying painting and printmaking, but I was also... Uh, doing a minor in crafts and a minor in art history uh, and was just really um really fortunate to be in that um that situation and the other thing that was sort of fortunate was at the time I was really interested in printmaking and they have a a good printmaking department there that's mostly split up uh as they often are into like a you know lithography uh etching and uh silkscreen printing and so uh, I was I was really drawn to 
the uh, sort of subtle grays and the chemical and sort of alchemical processes of etching. And so I, and some relief printing and stuff too, but a lot of, uh, a lot of that side of printmaking. And so I was really after the sort of first year class where you have to kind of, you know, do a little sample and produce a project in etching and litho and in screen printing. I had gone through that and uh, really fell in love with, uh, with etching and the idea of sort of throwing this metal plate into a vat of acid and, you know, kind of seeing what would result and then kind of drawing back into that and then throwing it back in again. And that sort of play between these chemical processes that you can kind of control, but not really. And the sort of drawing out of these uh, sort of pictographic details. And so the end of that was that I, I ended up hanging out in the print lab a lot and becoming sort of one of the print monitor assistant type uh, people in v VCU's uh, printmaking department uh, during that time. And uh, that I think was something that sort of informed how I ended up uh, sort of running a similar type space uh, so many years later. It it's pretty funny actually, because at the time, I remember doing the the basic uh, silkscreen, you know, the the sort of test print, and then you had to do one final piece of art using silkscreen to pass the the introduction class. And uh, I did that project, and I was just thinking, like, God, this this is so boring. Like the, you know, it's either on or off. It's a very black and white sort of thing. All the colors are totally flat, and it's just not that interesting. And for for litho, it was sort of similar, as it was too much like drawing for me and there wasn't enough sort of physicality. There was no scratching into metal and seeing how those marks hold ink and those kind of things that etching uh, allowed. And so I sort of wrote off screen printing as something I wasn't interested in and moved on with etching. Um, and, you know, several years later, ended up applying for, uh, for graduate schools. And I, I kind of had a feeling that I wanted to be near New York just because it seemed like a great cultural center with so much of the visual art in our society sort of moving through New York City so often that it seemed like an ideal place to sort of continue studying, uh, studying the arts and try to get plugged in somehow to that world. I wasn't sure in what way I was going to end up plugged in. But uh, when I was accepted to Pratt Institute's graduate program, uh, I decided to move to Brooklyn and, and take that on. And that was just before September 11th uh, that I moved in 2001 in that summer to Brooklyn. Uh, and immediately in the graduate program, I started working as a student worker in the printmaking department, hanging out in Pratt's printmaking department. And while my my technical field that I graduated in was, was painting and printmaking, um, I spent a, as much time in... My, my thesis work was mostly painting at the time, but I spent as much time in the printmaking department as anywhere else uh, on the campus. And so it seemed natural all that experience when I left, I missed that sort of feeling of camaraderie and, uh, you know, print, printmakers are just really cool people. Generally they're very, um, you know, I, I always say like painters sort of tend to be a little paranoid and, uh, are holed up in their garrets sort of working on their secret work and trying not to share too much. Whereas printmakers always just want to put on the radio, hang out, do their mechanical process that takes hours of repetition 
and you know share technical details and basically work in a room of people because it's it's more fun than working in a quiet private uh, painting studio. I agree with that one hundred percent. I've hmm. uh, throughout my life, many of my best friends that are sort of very communal people and sharing people and open with the you know sharing of their techniques and their processes and all this stuff have often been printmakers because my background's photography but and photographers are horrible with like being secretive and and competitive but i find printmakers to be some of the most like open and you know sharing of the of the creative fields in general yeah and i think a lot of that comes from the fact that the equipment is pretty spatially occupying and fairly expensive. And uh, it's very hard to maintain a private studio with access to everything that you'd want to do, even for one of the print disciplines. Like even if you were just focusing on lithography, sort of having a studio that let you do all of the amazing range of projects in lithography and sort of paid for its own costs. Like if you wanted to do something really large or you know, something that was uh, on aluminum plates and was multicolor, you need the exposing equipment for that. And, the, you know, the sort of giant sink to process the stones and whatever. So it really makes sense that you as sort of from a financial and social standpoint, that you would share a studio space. And I just always really liked the vibe in Pratt's lab and in, in Virginia Commonwealth University's lab. Those were some of the nicest, uh, most creative people that I met. And it's also got this connection to crafts that I was very interested in uh, from a time when I was young that the sort of the background in textiles and uh, in everything that I was interested in was like sort of all over the world, all these processes that people have, uh, you know, sort of carefully cultivated throughout generations to produce these specific objects that have so much of a cultural footprint on them but also are constantly evolving and being being transformed by the way that society moves and interacts. And, you know, there's sort of a school that says that uh, in crafts, there should be more of a sway towards this handmade, uh, time-intensive process, uh, the more that society swings towards this, like, cold... Uh, you know, reflective screens, digital world that we live in, where there's no physicality, no touch, and, you know, no real connection, everything's sort of uh, ethereal and and digital, and that there's sort of a, a longing, or there should be at least a longing by society to sort of go back to uh, something that's really physical, that's sort of cultivated through workshops and years of training and practice, you know, sort of becoming a master of this craft, you know, whether it's uh, like Japanese lacquer work or whether it's silkscreen, like there's still this uh, sort of idea that there are there are master printers, uh, these people who have thousands of hours of experience that you can um, you can approach and train with them or you know ask them questions that hopefully will will save the the project that you're working on and failing horribly at. Um, and there are some of those people around New York, luckily. So it's it's also a great environment. Uh, to be in. And and just in general, like sort of, I think it was different uh, far previously in New York City and the sort of secrecy of studios that we were talking about really did um, exist more uh, there. But after the time I came to New York, it had kind of transitioned from this like, you know, guys from the 60s and 70s sort of running their studios to uh, something that was a lot more open and a lot more collaborative. And there was sort of this feeling that 
everybody running their different printmaking studios in New York was really interested in um, in what other people were doing. Uh, and also this feeling that we should support each other as, as much as possible because, you know, the sort of financial economic situation in the city uh, also was not the same as it was in the 70s and 80s, maybe. And so we we were always kind of looking to help each other out to keep each other's studios, studios open as much as possible. And I, I feel like that that vibe was in the air. And I guess the first the first person sort of who I, I encountered who sort of gave that feeling in New York was uh, Luther Davis, who's an amazing master screen printer who was the uh, the lead printer um, sort of running uh, Axel Fine Art in downtown Brooklyn then has just recently uh, transitioned his team from that studio uh, to be part of uh, Powerhouse Arts, which is a new arts organization that's sort of, they're moving right now actually into a new amazing multi-million dollar building in Gowanus and will be sort of part of a uh, an incubator space almost for artists that are you know doing high end high quality work in the fine arts but that are kind of mid career and they're trying to make these amazing pieces but might not have access to the tools in an affordable way that would allow them to create this really exceptional art that they have visualized at this point and so Luther's team and Powerhouse Arts's print department is screen printing based and has amazing capacity, but they're also will be sharing this building with like a ceramics department, a woodworking department, you know, a, a textiles department. Um, and the idea is sort of that an artist can go there and kind of fabricate something that they would, you know, never have the sort of expertise to make uh, within their own studio, just sort of with their own, uh, you know, studio managers or assistants uh, in their own space. And, you know, it's it's great that Luther's there because he's always uh, really tried to share knowledge in printmaking uh, as much as possible and really felt like we would all succeed better uh, if we shared our secrets with each other, basically. And he has he has some story of moving moving to New York, you know, where he as a young printer came and went to these other, you know, saw these prints the shops were making, went to them and said, this is amazing. Like, how did you do this? And they kind of said, like, oh, no, no, that's sort of a shop secret we're not going to tell you. And so he he worked for several years making his own prints and finally did some amazing things. And those people running the other shops asked, how did you do that? And he was like, okay, here's the deal. Now I'll tell you what I did. If you tell, you know, tell me what you did and we'll, we'll all share information in a more open way. And that will be, uh, will be better for everybody. So he's, He's really one of the uh, the people I think who I always say he's like the patron saint of screen printing uh, in New York, and he's always been incredibly helpful and uh, really taken time out of his his day. Like you know, I always feel bad calling when I'm just like stuck on a problem and feel like I'm going insane. And uh, you know, he's always been nice enough to sort of I picture him you know making this blue chip art on the the shop floor, and then all of a sudden gets the call, like pulls himself away from whatever's being printed answers the really mundane and probably very silly questions that I have about screen printing and then goes back to, to doing what he's doing. So he's always been an amazing and helpful resource for printmaking in general, but especially for screen printers uh, in New York City. Uh, the other uh, group that I think really did a lot to sort of foster that communal uh, so supporting feeling in New York was a group called Printmakers Anonymous uh, that was formed with uh, Deborah Cheney, who uh, is a, a lithographic uh, publisher and printer 
in New York. And Mark uh, Hershey from Haven Press um, got together and created this uh, group for printmakers that was kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous, except, you know, we, our support group would be uh, going to a studio that was somewhere near New York, uh, talking about their processes, what they were doing, getting excited, showing each other work, uh, having some beers and some snacks, and then uh, maybe watching a demo of something really unique that that shop does that other shops don't do. And then, you know, that would be it. We'd all go home and they would, uh, you know, schedule, they would seduce another shop into letting the group come and schedule another, uh, another open studio type meeting for Printmakers Anonymous the following month. And I think that, that really did a lot to sort of, uh, you know, keep the community connected and help everybody realize that we could support each other in a lot of different ways. Uh, so it's it's really great to be part of that community in New York, and you know it's a artistically uh, and just sort of in contract printing, production printing wise, it's an amazing space to be because there's always someone trying to do something uh, unusual, difficult, or you know just trying to produce some prints in New York City, and usually it's on a usually it's on a tight deadline, and uh, they're trying to figure it out. And so because of that, we've gotten a lot of great opportunities to uh, to take on work that we might not have tried to take on and to really solve some of these problems and do something really creative with the medium of screen printing. Um, and so we've been very lucky to be here because of that also. Well, actually, to go back a little bit, like you, you have this entire sort of DIY ethos that seems to be sort of prevalent through all your career choices. I mean, you had a gallery, you also had a collaborative project that you did. So like, where did that sort of uh, enjoyment, because it takes a certain kind of person and personality to, to not just choose to do DIY type of uh, style, but like to stick with it, to like really make it like your life's uh, sort of techniques and styles so where did that come from i i think a lot of that is uh is also from that sort of community print shop sort of mentality that it as a print shop it should serve it's almost more like the craft side as well like it should serve a greater social good if possible than just sort of producing art for people who can afford to pay a production team to produce art for them in different ways uh, and because uh, screen printing is so wide ranging as a medium, like what it can be applied to, like the the general rule uh, when someone comes and says, can you screen print that is like, well, if it's flat, we can probably screen print it. And in some cases, if it's round, like a cylinder or something, you can screen print it too or whatever. So, you know, it's really applicable to a whole different range of things. And because of that, screen printing is sort of unique in that, you know, like sort of art school kids who are trained through a fine art background uh know how to screen print and sometimes they fall into becoming you know printers for t-shirts for bands or whatever because the technology is kind of the same and you can apply it to a t-shirt you can apply it to a tote bag you can print on clay you can um you know you can do signage and glass you can do typography and poster work and those kind of uh, design projects so it's it's really um a very incredibly wide ranging technology to get an image onto a surface, you know, and I think because of that, it's, it should be available to people and people tend to be drawn to it uh, from all these different walks of life as something that they feel like, Oh, if I can learn 
how to screen print than like this other thing that I work on that will like revolutionize how I approach that um, sort of the, you know, owning the means of production style basically. And so that, that sort of ethos that of, uh, you know, wanting to do something community oriented and wanting to, uh, to have it be um, available to people uh, even from that sort of more radical perspective of like, uh, you know, everyone should have the means to create their own media, basically, um, was sort of how I got into it. Initially, um, when, you know, we were doing the uh, the gallery space, it was my partner, uh, Garrison Buxton, and I doing uh, a kind of design duo, and we were doing a lot of street art postering that was kind of coming out of reading uh, Adbusters magazine at the time, and this idea that uh, sort of corporate ad creep was really destroying the fabric of of our communication and of cities and uh, the sort of way that uh, capitalism was manipulating society, um, not being very comfortable for us. We kind of met each other in Pratt's printmaking department. He was another grad student, uh, as was I, and uh, he was more of a screen printer his whole career and, or, you know, academic career. And so, you know, even though I wasn't particularly drawn to screen printing and I was teaching, assisting tons of uh, screen printing classes because most people who are forced, like as a communications design student in undergraduate at Pratt, you're forced to take a printmaking class. Everybody takes silkscreen because it's, as we just said, the most uh, sort of applicable to do a lot of different things with. Whereas if, you know, you're, you learn to do lithography, that's great, but it's not going to help you print t-shirts for your band or something. So, you know, that there were a lot of sections taught of that. And so I was, uh, you know, I was working in those and I knew how to screen print well. And I taught or co-taught um, these screen printing classes, but I wasn't really using it to make my art. But we uh, we kind of decided like, okay, well, we, we want to make some kind of counterpoint uh, that's going up in the streets that is... Uh, about this sort of ad creep or about how social uh, space is being monetized uh, and sort of, a, you know, the advertising industry has sort of pushed out a lot of anything organic uh, that might come up from the ground in a, in a society. And there was sort of a, a vibe for that um, at that time. Like, it just seemed like a lot of people who were undergraduates at Pratt, like uh, uh, the artist Caledonia Curry or Swoon, uh, who's a, a sort of well-known street artist was just happened to be an undergraduate at that time. And the duo uh, Darius and Downey, uh, Brad Downey and Leon Reed were doing a lot of really interesting street projects. And it, I didn't really know them that well personally at the time, but there was just this vibe. Like why, why are we sort of all trying to like funnel ourselves into these white box galleries in Chelsea? Why don't we just go out and do stuff on the streets. And if we do a good job, then they'll, we'll be known for it. Um, and we'll be able to have careers based on that, or at least we'll get our message out to somebody to see it. And it, it's not mediated by a, uh, an organization that's like a, you know, an ad organization or something. And so there was really a lot of, uh, a lot of energy for that at the time. And I didn't even really recognize it just seemed like something having just moved to New York, it just seemed like something that was innate in New York. Um, and I guess a lot of it was maybe like the Wooster Collective and other organizations started really paying attention and blogging about street art in New York. And it was a really beautiful time because you could, you know, have a concept, stay up all night in the printmaking department, make that concept, go out to, you know, the candy factory and so or in, uh, you know, on Canal Street, put up this thing and Wooster Collective would blog it and it would be seen by, you know, a million people around the world. 
the next day. And that, that immediacy of it was really, uh, really fun. And the idea that we weren't beholden to this sort of, you know, gallery system that I think a lot of people felt like was really divorced from so much that was interesting in society that was going on at the time, like the, the sort of cold white box gallery world was outside of that. So, you know, we started working together and making these posters and the best way to make uh, disposable posters that you're going to glue to a wall is to do it with screen printing because it's very quick and efficient and uh, very, you know, cost effective. And so we started doing that. And then I sort of started working for a, a fashion studio called uh, Keenan Dufty. They just called Pratt looking for someone who would screen print t-shirts in their, their Soho loft. And I said, yeah, I need a job. Okay. And so kind of started doing that. And so, you know, I had that experience. And so we started printing our own, printing the same graphics we were making posters of, but printing t-shirts to try to help kind of fund this project. And that grew to some extent. And we ended up taking on a space and that space became Ad Hoc Art Gallery, which was the, the gallery that you're uh, speaking of which was from like 2004 to 2009 and, and very close. It's actually the gallery space is three blocks from where we're located now for Bushwick Print Lab. Just by, by chance, we found a building uh, after being on the, the Jefferson stop a little farther out in uh, Ridgewood. Uh, we found it for 10 years, actually, and then we just moved back. So I've sort of not been in this specific part of the neighborhood for 10 years, but it's very funny to be just a few blocks from that gallery space that we ran during that time. And the, the front of the space is covered in graffiti and street art and still looks exactly like it did in 2009, ironically enough. So uh, it's sort of a weird, um, a weird sort of, uh, you know, milepost to walk by as I'm, I'm walking to the subway station or whatever down the block. But, you know, that space was, was very similar. It was like a, a space about uh, trying to, uh, you know, support other artists and uh, show their work while also kind of creating as much printed matter as we could to support it and trying to take on as many jobs as we could to to sort of try to pay the rent there as well. One of my big things, first of all, well, first of all, I would just want to throw back to like, because you just threw out a lot of things. So let me sort of like run through some things I took notes about. But like, I, I grew up like my father did uh, screen printing. He was a priest. And so for the church, we would actually do like wow. screen printed posters, screen printed t-shirts and like hand cut stencils out of newsprint and all this kind of stuff. And we, we, I, that's what I grew up with. And then after I finished grad school, I actually opened up a nonprofit uh, community photography darkroom. So like I come from the background of like helping the community, helping to sort of elevate people's knowledge and all this kind of stuff. And it, equally so, I'm hoping that this podcast even does that sort of shares knowledge, shares information, because as being in the photography side of the art world, I, there was just so many secrets and tricks and stuff and people comp competition and all these kinds of things that like I personally like think that that's the reason I, I, I didn't go into some other industry. Like the reason why I went into the creative industries in the first place was for that sense of community and working together and supporting each other that sadly I feel like is not as prominent these days as maybe I guess as I romanticized, but maybe it's just not there as much as it once was. Mm. So that's my soapbox there for a second. I like the idea of this sort of a uh, priest, you know, cutting stencils and making screen prints, um, you know, and that idea that, uh, you know, 
everyone in society sort of is forced or uh, whether it's economically or uh, creatively or whatever to take take their own sort of uh, media and advertising and sort of marketing campaign, whether it's for the church or the bake sale or, you know, their own artwork, say, uh, sort of forced to take that into their own hands by whatever means necessary. And that sort of punk rock ethos and that, that it applies in a church as well is a really uh, a really interesting sentiment. Oh, no, just to be clear, my father actually has his bachelor's degree in art and it is currently an, an iconographer. Uh, in his retirement. So he, he always had a little bit of creativity mixed in with his, you know, like he, it's funny because he used to try to tell me not to be an artist because <laughs> he w went to undergraduate and he was like, and he got out of undergraduate and he was just like, this, the art world sucks. And, and when mm -hmm. I wanted to go into it, he kept trying to talk me out of it. He's like, Oh, it's because of this and because of that, and it's because it's all about who you know, and it's about being, you know, having money or being you know, all these different attributes. That, like, mm. quite honestly, I was like, no, it's not really like that. And now, <laughs> thirty years into the, I'm like, oh fuck, it really is just like that. Like he knew exactly how horrible the arts world is. That's funny. Yeah, that's good advice for sure. My, uh, you know, sort of you were asking how you get here, but, you know, my my family was like, oh, you're a very good artist. And we're always really supportive. And, uh, you know, only after kind of moving to New York and sort of really seeing the machinations a little bit firsthand did I realize like, wow, the art world kind of sucks. And I think that was what drove a lot of people towards street art at that time, you know, and now yeah, sort of post Banksy and everything, street art sort of gone through its own uh you know, being folded into the art world uh, in some ways. So that that vibe is different. And the streets of New York, definitely, I feel like are a lot less creative and a lot less sort of genuine than they were in those days when it was mostly just sort of weirdo outsiders who were putting their stuff up just because they wanted to do it, you know, and then after sort of Banksy and so, you know, Shepard Ferry and Banksy and those people's sort of success with that as a method, kind of every art school kid was sort of like, okay, well, I guess if I don't do the gallery thing, I'll just go out and kind of, you know, put it up in the streets. And I'm, I'm not saying that I always did it with totally pure motivations or something. And part of it wasn't to have your artwork exposed to people who wouldn't see it, but it just kind of became a marketing tool. And the, the general uh, sort of fun of the discourse uh, really seemed like it it hasn't been the same, I guess, for the last like five or six years or something, just as sort of someone who's not as involved as centrally, but just sort of looking, looking from the outside. But, you know, that sort of aesthetic coming to street art, art was always very DIY at that time. And, you know, not everyone was sort of a trained art school graduate uh, who was doing it. Um, and that's what was sort of so compelling about it. And much like the, the sort of the rest of DIY uh, as an ethos. You know, it's just I was always really drawn to that and the idea that uh, everyone should have their own access to means of production. And especially for something like Silkscreen, where the um, the tools you actually need uh, to do it are actually relatively affordable. And obviously, we have a really nice uh, setup here at this point, uh, having been investing in it for so many years. But, uh, you know, for the really ultra basic, just sort of scrapping by, you can really do it, get yourself set up for a few hundred dollars and start cranking things out. And it's a very, um, you know, it's a very sort of low waste medium in some ways, like you have your, your screens and your photo emulsion, and you're sort of coating these screens, and then you're exposing them with the stencil and you can, 
hand cut or hand draw or hand paint those if you want to. And then, you know, using UV light, exposing the screen and then washing it out. And you're making your prints with just ink and some paper. So probably uh, fairly affordable as well. And then once you're all done, you can just sort of spray the screen with reclaimer and wash that stencil off and recode it and kind of use the same equipment over and over again to make hundreds of images. Um, so it always seemed like a very, uh, a very approachable, very affordable medium. And it seemed that people, more people should have access uh, because of the way that there are just really so many different ways you can apply screen printing. Uh, you know, like, like I said, if it's flat, you can print it. And so, you know, sort of making that available to people just seemed like something that was fairly important. And the other thing is just sort of the economic side of it is, you know, you sort of start to um, accumulate some equipment and, you know, spend some money on that. And then you're renting a space to sort of store that equipment. And, you know, you're using these, um, you know, exposure units and big screens and things like that every once in a while. But most of the time, it's just sitting there and not necessarily being uh, being used all the time. And so it seemed like a natural thing, like, well, this exposure unit's just sitting here most of the day. Why don't I, you know, figure out a very low uh, rate to sort of build people to come and use it? And then it'll be more active and will help to pay its own its own rent for sitting here in this very expensive uh, real estate in New York. And so that was part of keeping the shop open also. But the that sort of uh, aesthetic uh, propels itself. And so people who are interested in this kind of come and then many of them uh, become committed to the space in different ways or become employees or, you know, work trade volunteers or things like that. And that tends to draw other people and continue that whole process. So there was never really much of a a decision like, okay, we have to, you know, I mean, there, there has been that decision, I guess, was like, okay, we, we should really keep doing this um, because there's so much, it's so much ingrained in our culture is, Bushwick Print Lab and who we are is that that's part of what we do is to teach people to share things, to do workshops and, uh, uh, you know, kind of spread the gospel of print as much as we can and sort of uh, do best practices to answer people's questions as they sort of struggle through figuring out this sort of difficult arcane medium as it can be sometimes. Uh, we really try to help them, you know, just like if someone calls with a question, I try to answer their their question if it's possible, you know, and if I'm not incredibly, incredibly busy, I try to do it right there. And sharing that info seems like something that was always important, uh, important for us as a group um, and as, as an organization, you know, and it's not always easy. Uh, and, you know, I think about all the positive things that have come out of this over the long term every time I'm dealing with someone who this is their first time making a screen print and I sort of have to go through all the repetitive like uh, warnings and uh, you know cautions and uh, you know things to think about and teach them about ink systems and how film positives work and how to size a file to 300 dpi and final print size in photoshop like those things can be very frustrating and can wear you down but I feel like the trade-off for what what we contribute to the greater community that uses our space in so many different ways is bigger than sort of the the struggles that sometimes come with uh, constantly educating uh, people who come to the space. Well, certainly. I mean, I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. and like Fugazi and, and that whole sort of Discord record idea of like all concerts, $5, all, you know, albums, 
back then it was nine ninety nine kind of thing. I mean, the the idea that like art and creativity and all this stuff should be more for the masses instead of for the elitist, uh, you know, sort of uh, white cube and museum places. Like, I mean, I'm all for that, but that's a really tough choice to make, uh, you know, economically for your sort of lifestyle, mm. especially I would imagine in New York. Yeah, it, it hasn't, um, it hasn't been easy uh, for sure. And we've, we've been really lucky, uh, like some kind of divine providence has shown down on us, um, you know, as we're like about to not be able to make rent or, you know, some debt is starting to compile on our credit cards and then some wonderful client that we end up working with for years sort of uh, comes with a big project and saves us essentially from uh, from ourselves basically or from the socioeconomic uh, situation uh, here and you know we've been we've always kind of bootstrapped it I guess and, and we have no outside investment like I, I, I'm not from a particularly moneyed background i mean you know supportive and like middle class enough yeah but not not in the uh, higher echelons of wealth by any means you know that first project with uh, ad hoc art and peripheral media projects the project i was doing with garrison um you know a lot of that was sort of supported by some uh, some money that he'd sort of fallen into at that time and you know we've been i've been lucky to you know pull a box of prints out of a dumpster and find out that some of them were uh, quite collectible, and you know, one month, uh, you know, that bought us a our first Mac laptop computer uh, for the lab and things like that. So uh, you know, it's it's sort of a lot of scavenging and a lot of um, Craigslist. Um, I'm sort of a consistent Craigslist stalker for equipment and uh, auctions and things like that because it's almost like a sort of a battle to hold on to space. And so if you can kind of just keep paying that rent in New York and it's definitely not easy. Um, and we've, we've gotten very lucky just by odd chances there too. Um, but if you can sort of keep paying that rent in New York, there's so much turnover and space is such a huge uh, premium here that if you can hold a space for people to give things or to take things that are being sold for pennies on the dollar at auction, then you can actually equip that space fairly well. But really most of the expenditure is just that that basic rent for the physical street address and that, you know, that roll gate garage or that little studio box that you're in. Um, but if that exists, then you'll be surprised by how many people are like, hey, I am over here at this place and we have this drying rack and we don't want it anymore. Do you guys want a drying rack? And, you know, you just sort of rent the rent the box truck and go grab one, you know. Yeah, the, the trade-off is like, you know, then you have all this equipment and you have to kind of keep going with it, you know, and keep it keep it housed is the the challenge. Yeah, two things I've been looking for for decades are a great set of drying racks and a beautiful set of um, flat files to store all my works. Like, I cannot seem to find those to save my life. I should say, be clear, I can find them, but I can't find them at a reasonable price. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of right place at right time. Like, we've gotten totally free flat files and we we did a run one time because I, I usually try to support the other shops too and sometimes you uh find such a cornucopia that it only seems natural to call your friendly shops and just ask them if they want some too but we on craigslist or something i saw this like a uh, sets of flat files somewhere upstate ish I, I can't even remember where this was maybe it was like near uh new Paltz or something but they it was a, a sort of a 
in, with a planning board, they would have a, an office that would just be drawers and, you know, rows and rows of flat files that would have all the subdivisions plans, uh, sort of full size blueprints printed out for, you know, the top- topography and, uh, you know, the utilities in this community. And this place was selling these flat files off and they had like 50, I think, when I first 50 sets of, you know, five doors each or something when I first contacted them. And so when I, you know, when I called them and finally worked out the truck, I think they were down to like 20, but we basically took like 15 sets and, you know, they were $50 a set or something. And we, uh, we sort of split the truck between five studios and just drove around dropping off sets of flat files to every printmaking studio that wanted them at the time, you know, and that was sort of a, a nice thing. And we still have some of those files. Yeah. Very envious of that. Now back to the the whole way that you sort of keep the the print lab sort of going. So it sounds like you have clients that pay for uh, you know uh, job related things, right? That would be a yeah the contract printing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and workshops too. What and then you have a shop that like sort of sells your products. So like, do you do you still have time and the energy even to like make your own personal work Ooh, as well? Yeah. That is a uh, that is a good question. Um, we, we do kind of have all these three streams. I mean, uh, of revenue, or you know, we've got like the sort of DIY and workshops, and we've got uh, sort of screen processing where we expose screens for other artists uh, and plot film positives, which are like the uh, the negatives essentially, except it's a positive, but it's a a black print on transparency, and we plot those large format for people up to like forty three and a half inches wide by about 100 inches. So for people who don't have access to that, we we do that and we use them to expose screens and sell screens to clients all over the country at at this point. Um, and so that's a good chunk of our, our sort of income that keeps us here. And then the contract printing and working for, you know, uh, you know, bands doing merch and printing t-shirts and tote bags, as well as working for fine artists, printing on canvas or printing editions or those kind of things. And then the other part you're mentioning is sort of the the store from design work from people in the lab who uh, have been making the stuff and sort of most of us do it as a, a side project or a labor of love. And you are correct at this point as someone who's sort of been uh, tasked with running this whole thing the whole time, um, you're always behind schedule and there are definitely never enough hours in the day. And if I had a, a sort of New Year's resolution, it would be that I need to sort of do more printing um, of my own work than I have actually, because, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of fallen by the wayside, especially, um, especially since we've moved uh, two years ago, we moved to this new space and it's been a little bit of, um, uh, you know, a learning curve sort of figuring out, getting everything set up first, but then just sort of figuring out what's going to work and, you know, sort of how to pay the much higher overhead in the new space. And it's an amazing, much larger space. Uh, with street access, you know, like a roll gate garage door. And so it's a, a great situation to be in, but sort of figuring out how to pay this now doubled overhead has been a, has been a thing. And so I sort of fantasize about, you know, like a sort of another year down the road when uh, everything's sort of road and formulaic and I it, not quite so much of a struggle to figure out uh, some of these projects and to kind of know, know our capabilities or when we should draw the line even. Um, with some of these uh, exciting projects that we take on and actually start to um, start to get back to really uh, doing more of that work. And I guess w- one thing towards that, that I've 
I've done is like uh, we've talked for years about kind of finally starting a, a BPL run publishing project where we instead of sort of taking the highest bidder and running their their job for them, we're kind of contacting artists that we like and know uh, and people we feel like should be making screen prints and sort of proposing that and then sort of, uh, you know, fronting the publishing money for this project, producing a set of prints and then basically splitting it with the uh, the artist uh, is the only kind of financial transaction and, you know, setting the price and we agree to to sell them off. And we've been, uh, we've been kind of planning this and we started a few prints during the pandemic. Uh, and this year, I think we'll actually launch that uh, sort of BPL publishing program. You know, it really probably should have been January, but January was really, really busy. And we're sort of still setting up the exact uh, sort of branding and framework for how we want to to build this thing out. And I think once that exists, we're hopefully going to try to you know, publish a print a month, uh, besides the normal contract printing work that we're doing. Probably not, you know, not going to get rich doing it, but these people should be making prints and we have the means to facilitate that. And it's always really fun to, to sort of work with someone in a way that's not delivering a project to spec necessarily, but is like an interpretive, like, ooh, you could do this with this and this would work really well, or this would be fun and we never do that. And I think you should do that for this piece and we'll see how it looks as a print. And so getting into that, the creative side of publishing and really starting that project in 2022, I think is is also exciting and is kind of part of that same, do you get to be creative question is the answer is sometimes and, uh, and that would be part of it. And, and definitely uh, sort of blocking out a little bit more personal time to use this amazing equipment that we have to just do stuff that I think would be fun and or silly, or whatever, and uh, and see what happens there again. Because it's been about two years since I really had a good studio practice, I guess they call it, for for my own creative art. You know, we have a great studio practice for production. It's just uh, for personal work. It, it sometimes falls by the wayside, indeed. Well, it, it's hard because sometimes like, some people work better with having jobs that have nothing to do with the creative industries and then sort of being able to free up their time to be creative on the side, whereas some people love ha basically having their job being part of their sort of creative process kind of thing. Like, do you feel that like running this kind of thing sort of takes away some of your creativity and your love and your passion for it? Or is it feeding it and sort of making and encouraging it? I think the creativity aspect is is pretty well um, well boosted just by working in it. It's it's hard to not keep learning and to be kind of stimulated by these things and being kind of forced by contract printing to take on these jobs that you would never do. And it seems totally uh, like a ridiculous approach, but you're willing to give it a try for this specific thing, and then sort of having those experiences definitely uh, helps build your rapport of uh, sort of things that you can draw on at different times and just sort of outright just inspiration, I guess, for the ways that this medium of silkscreen can be applied in so many, so many different ways. Um, so that's really wonderful. I guess on the detraction side, um, it can be really difficult, you know, as you sort of struggle through, you know, printing film positives that work and match perfectly and are precise to detail. And then, exposing these screens and processing them and dragging them around and spraying them with a pressure washer and being covered with water to, you know, sort of backbreaking printing uh, in a team and going through your day and doing that. And then 
you know, everything's cleaned up and put away at the end of the day and you've succeeded in struggling through maybe delivering this project. And then, uh, you know, it's sort of, I, I, uh, Jennifer Harris, who used to work with the lab, uh, in previous years, she would always do this thing where, you know, she would have the day off, whatever. And then would come in at the end of the day to do some fun collaborative printmaking stuff and be like, okay, I'm here. Like, let's make some prints. And we're just like, oh God, like we will do anything else, but pull a squeegee anymore today. We've just done that for the last 10 hours, you know? And so it was her, her drive to try to convince us to make work, uh, as a duo, sort of working with the tools and screens we had, I, I think it was a, a lot of effort on her side sometimes to convince me at the end of the day, like what I needed to do most was to continue doing the thing I'd just done for 10 hours. Um, but when we did, it was actually amazing. And so a lot of those prints that are on the website, uh, you know, our collaborations between us, basically like a, her collage, she's mostly a collage and assemblage artist. And so her kind of collage aesthetic with you know, my screen printing skills and kind of everything in between, but just us sort of uh, working with a lot of the films and screens and whatever that we had in the space and then sort of trying to recombine them into something that was an interesting standalone piece of artwork is printmaking. Um, a lot of those were really successful, I think. And, uh, you know, it's it's it can be hard to maintain that. And it was definitely a lot of work for her to keep it motivated to keep that project going on, you know, and it's it's been a little while since... Um, since I've been involved with uh, sort of a creative uh, collaboration project that's been that uh, fruitful, I guess. So, so yeah, I, I could stand some more uh, studio practice, as they say, personally. One question I've always had, because I, at one point I was part of my uh, what OSHA, basically regulations of the university. I, I'm a professor also. And they kept asking like, oh, what about the chemicals here and the amount of waste water and all this kind of, and like whether or not they should drink, switch over to using, uh, you know, the, the vegetable based inks and all that kind of stuff. Like, like what are your impression of all these sort of ecological versions of how to do screen printing versus the traditional versions? I think I was lucky because I, I kind of came into the medium, uh, mostly after that transition was sort of worked out. And so at this point, a lot of the sort of uh, solvent-based studios, you know, that are kind of the ones that you think of when you, you know, think of screen printing that involves using a lot of lacquer thinner and uh, uh, you can smell the screen printing studio long before you see it. Um, that sort of old world screen printing studio of the 60s and 70s luckily had sort of uh, started to fade uh, out of existence. I mean, it's not luckily even, it's just the passage of time and the, the kind of changes in those OSHA regulations during that time. But I sort of experienced that uh, from the start of of uh, my printing, um, I, I guess most directly on two levels. Like one was the, uh, the graduate teachers uh, at Pratt uh, who taught screen printing. Uh, it was mostly people from the Brand X shop, which was uh, run by Bob Blanton. And they're sort of a classic uh, screen printing shop that had done a lot of like uh, Leroy Neiman printing or Chuck Close. Uh, these really amazing hand separated, you know, where an artist is, a colorist is, you know, breaking down a Chuck Close painting into a hundred sheets of acetate each with a little, you know, splatter of ink here and some pitograph pen marks here and some brushwork here in black ink that then becomes a hundred color screen print. 
they were teaching those classes, uh, or Bob was teaching those classes as well, and and Tom at Pratt, and they were a solvent-based studio, you know. So all the other undergraduate classes used water-based inks, and the graduate classes used solvent. And I remember being a, a shop tech uh, assistant there, and at one point, like uh, all the graduate teachers went on sabbatical, and the uh, department head at the time came in and said okay, basically like no more solvent inks in here. They're going to be banned from the shop and all the students who have them should just like cough them up into a pile basically uh, in the middle of the shop. And that'll be, that'll be that. And sort of made the move to, uh, to move away from that because it is a pretty, for people who are, are used to a less toxic situation, it's a lot, uh, th- those sort of solvents are a lot to take on. And you would know throughout that whole building if someone you knew who would like to print in solvent-based inks, if they were printing in the screen printing shop, you could immediately tell opening the door like, oh, Jeannie's printing in the lab today, you know, just from the the sort of very intense solvent fumes blowing through the the space. I kind of miss all those solvent scents. <laughs> I think I do too. Actually. I still have an affinity for the, for the dark room chemicals as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sort of uh, alchemical... Uh, sense that there's some some magic going on uh, somewhere, and you know we we do do some of that solvent printing still, but we sort of tend to penalize the client a little bit just for the fact that everyone's going to have to wear respirators, and everyone who walks into the shop who works here is going to say like, "Oh God, what are you guys doing?" You know, <laughs> it's like if we're printing glass with epoxy ink, or if we're you know, printing uh, enamel ink or something uh, for these special effects prints. Like th- sometimes it's the only way to do it. And we we still use them, you know, when we have to. Uh, but it's a little bit more rare. And I feel like some of those, you know, some of it's just the natural progression is that the, the new inks weren't always that great uh, back in the the olden times. And I remember sort of when we were in the old space uh, for Bushwick Print Lab, I remember finding out that a fine art printing limited shop was very near us and just calling them up. And the the person who was running it was this uh, master printer named uh, Alexander Henrici. And, you know, he answered the phone and I said, oh yeah, I'm a local print shop. I hear you're there. You have big equipment. I, you know, I want to come visit you and see what you do. And he was like, oh yeah, sure. Come on down. You know, wh- what do you do? You know, and I was like, oh, we, we're like a community shop. We do a lot of DIY. We do a lot of water-based printing. And he said, I hate water-based. And I immediately was like, I think I'm going to like this guy. <laughs> and went and saw his shop. And he was one of the other solvent-based uh, shops. you know. And as the door opens, uh, it's always the same scenario would play out is you know, the door to the shop opens, the assistant is there, and whoever is on the coming inside of the door is like, oh my God, it really smells like wintergreen in there. And the assistant says, oh, we don't smell anything. And it's sort of the the same dialogue over and over again. But there was just a different approach to chemistry and to the uh, the tolerances of the uh, the human body, I think, at that point, you know, that has long since uh, changed in society. But Alexander says that that's why he's uh, he's lived so long is sort of he's preserved by uh, by all these chemicals. Uh, but he's he's just recently uh, uh, retired uh, in the last year or two from uh, from printing and has um, has sold his shop uh, to a group of uh, of women who run a studio called Pegasus Prints using his equipment. Um, and they're doing really amazing work. I'm not sure if they're using 
those same solvent based inks that he had in stock, uh, you know, and he would say like, oh, yeah, some of these inks are from the 70s and the 80s, you know, that are still in gallons on the shelf lasts lasts forever, uh, indeed. But most uh, younger people uh, who've moved into the field are totally happy to work in as low VOC an environment as possible. And we support that as much as possible. And most of the inks uh, that exist today are very good quality. I mean, there's, you know, Speedball is sort of more of an art store brand, but it's a, a decent product and great for beginners. Uh, Jacquard and some other lines that do very nice inks. And then TW Graphics ink, which is what we're mostly using to print with. And that's a very, it's an incredible um, sort of high urethane, uh, you know, auto body pigment grade uh, ink that is really well chemically formulated and really is very durable, very, it covers a wide range of substrates and it's just really excellent ink, you know? So I feel like the technology that is, has brought these things out has allowed them to become kind of the, the norm for the industry. And most shops who are doing really high quality printmaking work uh, now are probably using TW graphics inks if they're in the, if they're in the U S just because it's such a wonderful product to work with. Uh, so I'm happy to see that, that change. And, you know, we, we try to minimize the ecological aspect uh, that are negative as much as we can while we're working through this and, you know, sort of using, you know, filtration uh, for wastewater and all of that kind of stuff, as well as just really uh, trying to keep the uh, solvents necessary and the chemistry necessary to do the job, which is some real chemistry, um, and trying to keep that as safe as possible and keep its use sort of constrained into a minimum as much as possible. And you can do a lot with a little if you are using the right uh, product in the right situation. Now, just as a question, like the, as a breakdown, so like let's say the difference between like your commercial jobs versus your working for artists and doing sort of artistic projects and things like this, like how much of it is commercial and how much of it is sort of artistic? Really, it's, 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 much more, I mean, there, there's a decent amount of sort of uh, DIY and workshops and live printing that comes into it um, every month, but really probably like 80% is uh, contract printing uh, when all totaled together, maybe even more than that, you know, like the, it's sort of a, it's always a delight when, uh, you know, someone goes to the store and sort of buys a print that we've published or, uh, you know, a piece of art from somebody at the lab who's sort of lovingly made this graphic and then printed it and done an edition of 50. And then it's really nice to come in and in the inbox, see on the Shopify that like, oh, someone bought one of your chicken prints. You know, that's amazing. Uh, or whatever it is. Um, it's, but it's a rarity, you know, and so it's always exciting, but it's not necessarily what supports the, uh, the business. And part of that's on us, I think, that people, and, you know, maybe they're fans because they're fans first. But when when these people see this work, they're like, this is amazing. You guys should show this more. You should put this out in the world and really market this in a successful way. But we are very bad marketers of our own product, but are fairly good at uh, sort of pushing uh, production print projects through the uh, the line here and like delivering really high quality work, you know, for artists and sort of using that to sort of fund the space. Well, that's something that like I find a contemporary, what I would consider like a problem with the the industry across the board. And I don't just mean the fine arts industry. I mean the a whole creative industry. Like 
I feel like it, the the onus of like being a marketer and a public relations person has fallen back to us when we have like chosen to be in the creative industries because we don't want to be part of that sort of industrial machine of marketing and public relations. But because of social media and all the other sort of internet-based things, that, had, that, that has become our responsibility again. And I just don't like that because if I wanted to do marketing and public relations, I would have gone into that industry. But I chose the creative industries because I really wanted that lifestyle and the, the community and, and not have to worry about all those kinds of things but unfortunately these this modern days we live in has made it so that uh, kind of we have to do it and that sucks horribly yeah in, indeed it's you have to wear a lot of hats in this in this world you know and that's everyone kind of asks like what's your role at bushwick print lab and i'm like i know i just wear a lot of hats most of the time is really a, like a, we have great printers uh for apparel and for paper who are actually really doing most of the printing at this point um and i'm you know i'm, I'm one of the weird ones that nobody else wants really as far as uh, production work goes but other than that i'm just wearing a lot of hats and it, it is really difficult because the technology uh, has changed so quickly in so few years and it changes every time they update an algorithm or whatever is if you're not you know if that's really what you're trying to focus on if you're not really learning the new technologies for you know direct uh, email marketing through instagram or uh you know sort of how to hook your website up and have it be most streamlined to sell products directly to consumers who are viewing your product on social sites and things like if you're not doing those things i'm sure you're missing sales but it's a whole other section of the brain and a whole other a whole other training. And I, I know there are people in between who are happy to, uh, you know, to sort of for a fee be a consultant for marketing. But that's also a whole other uh, area that one has to take on and uh, really analyze. And, you know, oftentimes we're, you know, we're, we sort of are struggling through just making every deadline for every project. And so these uh, these sort of bigger uh, oh yeah, we'll do that research, we'll figure that out and we'll make it better, often get pushed down the road, oftentimes for, for years at a time as we're constantly like trying to make Friday's deadline and then Monday's deadline and then get everything ready for the live print on Tuesday and those sort of things. Um, it's, it's easy to not want to or take these things on. And I'm, I'm with you completely that, you know, I, it's almost like nostalgia for the, uh, the older era um, when, you know, you would just sort of, move to New York City, get a loft in Soho, get a job doing window decor or sign painting or something, and then just sort of start making your work, meet a few artists, you know, find that one lucky gallerist who found you and your group of peers who were this specific little movement and said, this is the future of art and I want to represent you and I will take half of your earnings, but I will manage all of the all of the public relations and I will find you clients and I will uh, get you in museums and this will be the future everyone. And you know, you, you could just do that. And it was half of the gallery sales, but my God, compared to how much of our brain space it takes up to be your own artistic marketing machine. It's really a sort of a, a very nostalgic and sort of almost wonderful place to be at this point. 
And that's the, exactly what I romanticize in my mind and sort of wish I could find. I mean, like you said, like just having to switch your brain around from like being creative to being a marketer to paying bills to doing all this other stuff. Like it's a really hard sort of juggle to like have to integrate all these different aspects of our, our industry constantly if we're, you know, a one man or even just like a five man show, like unless you have dedicated people that do each individual sort of different brain function it's really quite hard these days to to be in the creative industries and to, to sort of pull it off really really well yeah it's mostly marketing uh, in a lot of ways you know as it, it's it's interesting to uh, see it sort of a little bit more from the back end as people you know living their dreams trying to produce these creative projects you know whether they're design based more or fine art based or product based even to see them kind of producing these things and then see who succeeds and who sort of fails in the financial way in the market. Uh, and it's not necessarily always based on uh, genius or uh, quality or whatever, but it's just kind of based on who sort of figures out the market uh, in a way that can support them, you know, and, and not everyone who's a design genius uh, is able to do that, unfortunately. Correct. Yes. And yeah, we could we could definitely stand to uh, improve on those things as, as a lab, you know, as I feel like in the coming years, hopefully we'll um, we'll continue to uh, sort of have more outreach outreach about how amazing uh, some of the things and artists and pieces of design that we're uh, helping to execute, how amazing this stuff is and kind of do our job to sort of help promote that as much as we can within that within our own little slice of the uh, the sort of social ecosphere of of art and design here in New York and in the world, actually. I mean, that's the, the trade-off really is like that, that sort of nostalgia for, you know, the, the late sixties or whatever, when you could just sort of hang out at the, the, you know, Cedar Tavern in Soho and kind of meet everybody who's in your scene uh, all at the same time is the, the sort of technological trade-off is that while now it does not seem like there's a, a Cedar Tavern uh, type space for artists and designers or whatever to hang out in. Now we do have access to really the best, most creative work from all over the globe that's constantly being posted. And, you know, you can fall into a little slice of the world's communities, but globally, really the best people doing that work. And so, you know, even just going on Instagram or something, it's great, but we probably follow like, you know, 2000 creative studio printmaking accounts and it's really wonderful from all over the globe to see what these printmaking shops are doing and how they're doing it you know so while you might not get to sit on a bar stool next to you know Pollock or de Kooning you do get to see really the best and the brightest from all over the world if you want to look for it and that becomes your community so that's the sort of trade-off with this uh, sort of technology that you have to navigate these days. Sure. You also brought up your live printing. You said it's every Tuesday. Is that right? No, no. I was just saying like, you know, as, as an example, like we might have one uh, coming up uh, at any given time. And I, I have one this week uh, on Friday. We're printing at the Brooklyn Museum for their teen night. Uh, and they've submitted some graphics that, uh, you know, someone who's, I'm hoping some of the teens actually had created. I'm not sure if it's the teens or the staff. Uh, specifically for this, but you know, they're sort of created these graphics and they have a teen night, which I assume includes some sort of presentations and lectures. And then as people are filtering out from that, we'll be printing these graphics on t-shirts and maybe tote bags. 
you know, sort of in in the situation with a uh, you know ink and a squeegee and a flash uh, dryer unit to dry them and sort of let people see uh, how the process works, you know, and it, for a lot of people who've never seen screen printing, like for us, it's very mundane because we see it every day, but for a lot of those people just uh, sort of passively moving through a live print is like a revelationary life changing experience that you can make this very simple stencil and then you can apply it in whatever colors and whatever way you want all over whatever you can make flat enough to put under there to print. So it, it, it's fun to blow to blow people's minds with screen printing. And it gives us a little bit more like, oh, yeah, actually, this isn't just sort of a relentless pursuit of printmaking perfection, but it actually is a miracle that you can you can do this stuff as efficiently as we're able to do it every day just with these very simple tools. So that's a it's it's very heartening to see people really enjoy seeing how it's done or how it's made. Marvelous. Well, do you have any advice for like the next generation? Because part of this podcast is sort of the the hope that the the next generation basically like doesn't uh, have to fail in the same ways that I failed or that my guests have made mistakes in their own career. So like any advice about like things to either try to do or to keep up or even things to not pursue because they're not as well useful or helpful or productive or whatever? I think that you're you're going to be drawn to what you're drawn to, and I think by nature there's something uh, really valid to that. And so, obviously, do that. Focus on it. Um, you're going to need to devote a decent amount of studio practice to that, whatever it is. You know, whether it's uh, playing the violin or becoming a screen printer. O- occasionally, people introduce me as a master printer, and I'm very quick to correct that that is really not the case. And I I know what I'm doing sort of most of the time at this point, but that's about as far as I would go with that, you know, but it does say master printer on your website. Yeah. I think um, someone else in our lab set that up and I tried to argue it a little bit uh, against that and they, they wouldn't take it down. So it's, I let it ride, but I was actually wondering, like, what is it that constitutes the addition of the term master printmaker versus a printmaker? I mean, and I I think about that in all different mediums as well. So this is not any sort of snarky comment towards you. But like, you know, what in your mind, so like not even about your own title, but like if somebody were to put the term like master printmaker, what constitutes them being able to achieve that position or level or whatever? Yeah, that's that's sort of what um, what I was leading to. I think was that, you know, it's really just um, a matter of a uh, of studio practice and sort of putting in the uh, the time and effort to actually uh, to master this medium, like to be able to make it behave in the way that you want it to behave and to do what you to do what you want. And there's not really a you know like a degree designation or something uh, that you can achieve. I mean, there's there's Tamarind Institute for lithography, which probably if you wanted to be a world-class lithographer, you would probably try to attend Tamarin Institute at least for for a bit there and maybe even graduate with a degree as a, a printer from Tamarin and that would be a good start. But for a lot of other fields, there's not like a sort of degree checkbox and, uh, you know, it's not even dependent necessarily on, you know, having an MFA or whatever uh, when you start, like people come from all walks of life to, to this thing, but it's really just... Um, you know, sort of having enough studio practice that you can make it do what you want. And I think about, um, 
I, I kind of to go back to Luther Davis, who I mentioned at the beginning, I think about him and I'd seen him lecture a few times and he had the same thing where he was introduced at some lecture as a master printer. And he was like, well, if, if I'm a master printer, okay, I guess, but really that comes from making every possible mistake with screen printing that you could make multiple, multiple times. And so therefore I'll take it, I guess, if that's what, um, if that's what it takes to, uh, to become a master printer. And that's probably really what it takes more than anything is sort of, uh, failing in so many different ways that you have those, uh, those failures covered in the future, or you're at least thinking about it a little bit. And then just like a master musician is people will ask like, Oh, how do you, you know, how do you become a master printer? And it's like, well, like, how do you become a master guitar player? You know, you practice constantly all the time and fail miserably quite a lot. But in that, uh, if you do it long enough, eventually after a few thousand hours, you should be, <laughs> you should be fairly good at what you're, what you're doing. Um, and I think that's maybe where, where part of that comes from. Um, and I guess to, to answer the rest of the question, um, you know, like find a group of people who can support you and they'll help you with this sort of mastery of your, your craft, um, or your art, whichever way you, you like to view it. Um, and that, uh, that could only be beneficial is to sort of find a supportive community, um, whether that's sort of, uh, for criticism, uh, to sort of focus what you're doing conceptually or whether that's uh, just someone you can borrow a, a quart of white ink from occasionally when you forget to go to the distributor, um, but find someone who can support you and uh, had been said to me and I always uh, wish that I took it more uh, more to heart, but uh, it's keep your overhead low basically is the, uh, the other part is like you'll be able to take more risks and uh, curate your projects more to what you're actually interested in, even if it's not immediately financially rewarding, if you can keep your costs uh, to run your space or to support your uh, your project, if you can keep those costs as low as possible. And that's always really the, uh, the, the sticking point sort of being around New York. And, you know, when we were moving, we th I thought maybe, oh, well, maybe I'll move you know, outside of Philadelphia or maybe upstate New York where the commercial space is so affordable and we'll keep a small office in Brooklyn somewhere and I'll drive back and forth with a sprinter van a few times a week. But I'm I'm glad at this point that I, I stuck around and that we ended up kind of going all in on a larger a larger space, but it's far and above the uh, the biggest expense and is probably almost equal to payroll, if not equal to payroll every month uh, here is just sort of, a, you know, keeping keeping that space. But obviously, the lower, you know, the lower expenses you have on silly things uh, related to overhead, the more you can be creative and make really interesting work where you're allowed to fail uh, once in a while. And that's the only way it's going to get good is if you're allowed to fail. But you have to be financially allowed to fail enough to do it again later and not be evicted immediately thereafter. So it's sort of a, a balance that you have to strike there, I think. Oh, yeah. Just to make you a little bit jealous or envious, I'm here in Prague, the Czech Republic, mm -hmm. and I have a two-car garage equivalent as my studio space, and I pay mm. a whopping $40 a month. Mm. Nice. Yeah, that's when I first moved to uh, to Richmond for uh, undergraduate at VCU, I think my my share of this two bedroom apartment split amongst four people was like eighty nine 
dollars a month or something, and I could actually sell blood plasma enough to totally cover my rent if that was to become necessary. So, uh, you know, those those days, unfortunately, in New York are uh, are long uh, long behind us. But I'm I'm just hoping, you know, we have a decently long lease here, and I'm hoping that uh, that we can stick it out because I really do like the location. And as I was saying, I'm glad that. I'm not much of a driver and the idea of me sitting in Holland Tunnel traffic every day or something uh, or crossing the Tappan Zee every day just or, you know, twice a week even just didn't seem quite right. Uh, And you still have to maintain an office or some space to meet people in New York. And that's already somewhat expensive anyway, even if you're doing like a kind of shared co-op-y workspace type situation. So, you know, in the end, I'm glad that we we stuck it out and made the decisions that we did. And it's sort of you know, the location, location, location part is like, what are you willing to to trade off? Uh, we have access to so many amazing creatives who pass through New York City uh, on a regular basis and they're immediate. And, you know, when, when they search, you know, search in Google or whatever uh, and for a printmaking shop, you know, we happen to be one of those shops and we'll, we'll probably be the one that says like, wow, that seems really odd and unusual, but sure, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Like, I'll give you a quote for that, you know, as opposed to some of the other shops that are printing t-shirts or kind of have their, their publishing thing the way they want it. And they don't really need a lot of outside input from other, uh, from other clients, you know, we're the ones who are happy to take it on. And so because of that and being in the location, we, like I was saying, we've really gotten the opportunity to do some weird stuff that I probably never would have had the chance to do if I was, you know, way out in, you know, uh, Western New York state or something. And it, that's been a real, a real blessing. And I, to meet some of these amazing artists that uh, I've known their work from before I came to New York and then to be working with them or printing with them at this point has been a really wonderful uh, experience also. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, what, what area you're willing to, uh, to take those, to take those costs in um, whether it's a long commute or whether it's just sort of forking over a little bit more every month to, uh, to keep the space and keep the lights on. Um, and I, I'm I'm happy with the choices that we've made, and I'm I'm hoping that we have at least another you know five or six years in this location to to keep uh, keep developing and keep uh, sort of spreading the gospel of uh, screen print. It is a bit of a mixed blessing. I mean, from what you're talking about, like sharing with other studios and stuff like this, I'm like, it, I'm very envious. Like the idea that you have, you not only have your own sort of community studio, but you also have a community of studios throughout New York is a really sort of a optimistic thing. Like it's something that sort of gives me a little bit more hope versus some other cities that I've lived in that don't have these sort of uh, nice, strong networks and, and support groups. Yeah. Like for, uh, for printmaking, it's interesting because it sort of sneaks in, uh, in a lot of different places. And so almost everywhere, like sort of surprisingly looking around the country, like almost every major city has something not so dissimilar to Bushwick print lab as far as like a, a DIY space or at least a cooperative uh, where printmakers are sharing equipment and space in whatever way that uh, cooperative set up. But th- these things exist really quite a lot and all through, you know, through the world and, and Europe and, you know, Latin America, there's like so much, uh, so much of a healthy, uh, a healthy collaborative scene for making prints uh, still that, you know, it, it's sort of a minor miracle, I guess, that with, real estate prices being what they are, that there's still such a nice, strong, uh, deep and rich uh, printmaking 
community of shops in New York City that, uh, like I said, do mostly support each other and are happy to share resources uh, when they can. And it's just sort of an ethos that that goes along with trying to survive, I think, in this very, uh, uh, very difficult uh, financial environment, you know, for someone who's, uh, you know, who's making prints, like we're, you know, getting two or three dollars every time we pull the squeegee. And that's one way to make production. But it's so hard to compete with venues and Michelin rated restaurants and clubs and things that have a whole different business model that can only it only drives up the price for commercial real estate in these areas. And I, I've been lucky enough to be in this area. And that's kind of thinking about leaving or, you know, moving the main part of the shop somewhere else um, was really hard because, you know, like I was saying, ad hoc art was just down the street. And so that was like, since 2004, I've essentially been within like a 20 block radius in East Williamsburg and the neighborhoods changed immensely uh, in those 15 or 20 years. Um, As this area went from like a very industrial kind of post-industrial vibe that was still fairly uh, depressed economically uh, after sort of the the developments of the 80s and New York City's bankruptcy and white flight and all the other things that had had changed the neighborhood. Um, And then sort of seeing it come back now, and we we ended up out here because it was affordable space when we were first looking for some affordable commercial space. And it was convenient to us living in Brooklyn, and it was near the L train. And so that seemed like a very uh, good way to get to, you know, Union Square in 15 minutes or whatever. And so it was kind of an ideal location. And so I'd been fortunate to be out here since then, but it's definitely, uh, you know, it changed quite a lot in that time. Uh, but, you know, I'm glad that I've sort of been able to hang on and to offer um, this space as a resource to people who are looking for tools uh, or a space uh, for printmaking, for silk screen printing, uh, that, we're, that we're still around in this location to do it, you know, as I feel really fortunate and I'm glad to to be sticking it out in this area uh, after all that. One last little thing. You brought up the the terms craft and art. Like So at this point in your illustrious career, like how do you constitute the terms craft versus art within the, the screen printing thing? Like in my mind, I'll be, I'll, I'll tell you my opinion. I believe like if you're doing it for a client, it's basically a craft, but if you're doing it for yourself, then it's your art form. Yeah, I, I think so. That's an interesting way to, uh, to break it down, but that, that seems as valid as anything else. I mean, there's a pretty long discussion to be had here. I think about, about which is which and kind of at what gray fuzzy area they kind of, uh, they kind of cross over, but, uh, you know, making art and I, I don't argue that it's not still fine art, but like, uh, you know, sort of the Jeff Koon studio even, or something like that, where there's like a team of people, uh, who are excellent painters making, executing those painters to the Kuhn studio, uh, very high expectations. And there's a team of ceramicists executing those sculptures in the same way. It almost starts to blur that line. I mean, the, the art coming out is the, you know, the sort of highest of the fine art based on our current system, but it's also almost more like a, the sort of medieval production studio model as well, uh, on a certain level. Uh, that kind of gets a little interesting into like what the the role of craft within producing that fine art, I guess. But but yeah, I, I think that's a valid point. 
I would question your whole position on Jeff Koons being the highest of fine arts as well. I personally <laughs> believe he's more of a commodity-based product at this point in his career. Mm. Yeah, that that is a very good argument. This was sort of, um, you know, from a from the uh, the art world at all uh, kind of perspective, maybe uh, on that. It's not necessarily a personal opinion on that one, but. Um, you know, I, I do know a lot of people who work for the studio or have have worked for the studio, and they all seem like uh, they're happy, happy to be employed and doing something, you know, related to the thing that they spent all that time in graduate school or whatever learning, learning how to do well. But yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. And I think putting it in the hand of the artist as like, you know, that's when it's art, even if the medium is needlepoint, or the medium is uh, woodwork, or the medium is these sort of mediums that we traditionally associate with making craft uh, or the making of craft uh, that once it's in the hand of the artist, you really begin to manipulate that medium in a way that is more about uh, it becoming a very efficient tool for executing your creative vision. And so it's, it's always nice when I, cause they're kind of these rules of printing, you know, and it's always nice to, uh, see people who work counterpoint to that where it's not like, you know, this is the edition. They are all totally identically alike. They're all 12 colors. Uh, there are two printers proofs and one artist proof produced and one uh, bat print. And that is the thing. The paper is this consistent paper and that's the rule. Um, it's nice when you just get someone who's like, oh, I just make these screens and then I just print them all crazy all over everything that exists in my studio. And I make this. And usually when they show me what they make, I'm like, oh, my God, that is amazing. You are an artist, my friend. Like, this is amazing. So I think there is something to, uh, you know, taking a craft tool and putting it in the hand of the creator. And that that does leverage that tool somehow into uh, oftentimes becoming, quote unquote, art. So that's a, as good a definition as any, I think. Fair enough. Any last topics you want to talk about? No, thank you for uh, thank you for inviting me on. It's been a pleasure uh, to be here, and thanks for uh, for finding us out and um, being interested in printmaking in general. I think that's that's wonderful that that's uh, that's how you came how you came to us was just like uh, going down the print rabbit hole. And there's so much due to our wonderful internet. There's just so much great content that studios that are actually making stuff are producing constantly, and it's it's always really nice for me to sort of search around and just see what what other people in this field are creating who they're creating it for, how they're doing it, and what ingenious sort of hacks they've developed to uh, to make life easier in their studios. I think it's a wonderful place to research. Um, and, you know, print is really a great place to be because there's this sort of fine art as an investment side that we've talked about that is, you know, it's it's hard to argue that that is one aspect of the the art world that, you know, fine art investment over the past year is outpacing the S&P by 150% or whatever is an investment, that sort of financial financial cog explanation is sort of one way to look at the world of fine art. But on the other side, there's so many amazing makers of things, uh, creating them by very efficient means like printmaking. And so therefore, the, the barrier to the cost of entry is really low. Uh, and it's very easy, I think, for people to support these uh, these designers these artists and these studios who are making these productions and if they see something that they they really like or enjoy you know it's it's often in a a range that most people can afford uh you can have it framed 
nicely and the frame will probably cost as much as the uh, the print that you just purchased. But then you can, you know, have it in your kitchen or whatever and not feel guilty about it, you know, being a little near the range or whatever uh, that you're doing. Is it's a, it's a really sort of a uh, print is a great way to sort of bring um, bring art and design into daily life and it doesn't have to be obscure or it doesn't have to be uh, theoretically argued for as a plausible uh, cultural solution it's just a you know an, an easy way to sort of support something that you find visually interesting and i think that's another uh, another way for us to look at it and to support uh, people who are doing this work around the world fabulous yeah I, I'm all for it. I'm 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 a huge fan. I I sort of wish I'd gotten into it earlier in my career. You know, I did it as a kid, didn't do it, and sort of kind of wish I could get back to it. It's a real undertaking. You know, there's a lot of repetitive work, and you know, tearing down one edge on perfectly. You know, on 300 sheets of paper, and then turning that paper and tearing down another edge perfectly on the same 300 sheets of paper, and things like that. So it can be very meditative. Uh, and, you know, most people who have been in print most of their lives or, or, you know, I guess back to Luther again, you know, is like, I think his argument of how, you know, all of us studios should work together and support each other. Part of that argument is that, you know, this is really hard, really difficult, exacting, fairly scientific, very physically demanding work. And, you know, it's it's really, really hard to sort of go it alone. And so as much as we can support each other as a community, uh, that's better. So, you know, on the, on the one side, yes, it is, uh, it is very available, but on the other side, it's also, uh, it can be very, it can be a lot of work basically is the short version. Um, and that's why I think that it's great to support people who've, who've made a career out of it as much as we can, you know, is they don't often get as much of the, the fame as these, uh, you know, sort of artists who are, you know, the sort of breakout pieces at Basel each year, uh, things like that. But, um, you know, they, they really have put in the hours and the time to, uh, to do it and oftentimes support an economic ecosystem that, uh, you know, does benefit people in the community who come to it from the arts uh, and from all other walks of life that it, you know, it, it can be a valid, uh, a valid career for people who are just, uh, looking to do something physical, looking to do something visually stimulating and want to uh, want to figure out what there is within that that zone is if you play all the cards just right and have a little luck, um, you know, you can actually uh, sort of squeak by, you know, producing prints for yourself and for other people. Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, or anyone with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community both today and in the future is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. 
Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.